Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, a politically motivated massacre on Election Eve in 1934, Calaris, Pennsylvania. Not long after these vehicles reached Joe Bruno's house, um, there, there's just there's no other way to put it. All hell broke loose. There were so many gunshots, rifle shots, pistol shots in such rapid succession that when residents of the town called police for assistance, they thought it was submachine guns. Welcome, everyone, to Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad you are here with me again. Thank you very much for listening. So great to have as my guest today, Stephanie Hoover. She is a freelance journalist, professional researcher, and the author of 10 books, many of which focus on the darker side of Pennsylvania history. She's here today to talk about the Calaris Massacre, politics and murder in Pennsylvania's anthracite coal country. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Eric. Yes, this is great. So tell us a bit about your interest in this case. When did it begin? You know, I have to tell you, uh, most of my subjects sort of come to me in the same way. I'm researching a completely different topic altogether, and I stumble upon a book or a newspaper article or some uh, piece of archival material that I think, my gosh, that's really interesting. So I, I jot down the notes and then I come home and I, and I start researching a whole brand new topic. And, um, the Kellers massacre was very, very much in that vein. I was looking for something completely, uh, different and I came upon a newspaper headline with the word massacre in it. And I thought to myself, Massacre in Pennsylvania, you know, that's it's the 1930s. What are they referring to? Uh, I dug a little deeper into the article and I realized it was politically motivated. And I thought, my gosh, how in the world is it possible that I've not heard of this? And from there, I just kept digging deeper and deeper and uncovering more and more and more. And I realized this is definitely worthy of a book because it was such a brutal event. Um, and even though national newspapers had discussed it, it just never really got the full explanation that I felt it deserved. Well, let's start with the town of Calaris itself. Uh, where is it? What was it like in 1934? Well, you know, it, it, Calaris sits in Schuylkill County, which is the heart of uh, anthracite coal country in Pennsylvania. Anthracite is the coal that um, uh, burns the hottest, creates the most energy. Um, so it was highly, highly in demand. And the industry itself really, pardon the pun, fueled the economy of Schuylkill County. At the time of the event, which was the 1930s, 
Schuylkill County, interestingly, was one of the few counties that was skewing Democrat. Now, here's the interesting thing. In 1932, FDR won by a landslide. He didn't win Pennsylvania. Herbert Hoover actually won Pennsylvania. But the county of Schuylkill actually voted for FDR. It was one of the only 26 of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania that did. So they were working class people. They were hardworking people, miners, um, many ethnicities, Lithuanian, Russian, Italian. Um, what had once been a German farming community turned into a real multicultural mining community. And their lives revolved around two things, the coal mines and the school system. Interesting. And this story is set just before a very important election, right? That's correct. It's the evening before the 1934 election. And the, the, the interesting thing, the way it parallels so much of our more modern political history is, as I said, FDR had been elected in 32. In 1934, Democrats were hoping, of course, that the election results, the midterm election results, would solidify FDR and the Democratic policies. And, of course, the Republicans were hoping that 1934 would rebuke the previous election and change things back to a Republican-controlled government. So it was an incredibly important election nationally. In, in local terms, Trouble had already been brewing in Kellers with uh, Joe Bruno, who is the I, I want to say star of the book, but that's that's probably not the right terminology since he instigated the massacre. But he was the power broker in Kellers. Um, so for him, the 1934 election was really important. He was trying to maintain control of the school district, of the school board. Um, that was his seat of control, so to speak. Would you talk about the Bruno family, how they arrived in Colaris, and how they were able to thrive and ultimately consolidate power? Well, it's really interesting because Joe Bruno's father and two uncles came to the United States in the 1870s. They came into Schuylkill County. Joe Bruno himself was born in Italy, but but came to America as a small child. When when Joe's father and uncles got to Schuylkill County, there is no dispute. They were hardworking individuals. One of them opened up a, a cigar factory. Another opened up a men's store. Um, it, it, Joe's father had a grocery shop. But all of them sort of had political aspirations to some degree. Uh, one of them was a school director. One was a notary. One was a postmaster. One was a JP. I mean, you know, they held various roles throughout their lives. So for Joe Bruno... Coming up as, you know, the second generation of these, this Italian family in America, he was equally, if not more ambitious than, than his father and uncles were and continued particularly in that political arena. By the 1930s, Bruno controlled much of the town. Where did that power come from? I, I believe he really, quite honestly, was a self-made man, and he was not a man who um, was to be trifled with. He knew what he wanted, and generally he got what he wanted. Um, and he placed himself into positions where he ha he just naturally, by by uh, by the position itself, naturally had authority and control over people. For instance. He became uh, a man responsible for approving loans for mortgages through the local bank. Um, I don't know how much more control you could possibly think of than whether somebody or not can say yes or no to your mortgage. So if, if you're looking for a house and Joe Bruno is the guy that's going to decide and he asks you for a favor or asks you to support him in election, you, you know, you're probably going to do that. Um, but he also got involved in illegal activities. Uh, 
alcohol. I mean, everybody during the Prohibition era, many, many people bootlegged alcohol. That wasn't anything uh, unique. But what is sort of unique to Schuylkill County and the coal region is that he also bootlegged coal. And that was a process whereby men either went into abandoned mines to sort of take out what was left. Uh, they, they, there were chunks of coal in piles that weren't worthy of selling by the big companies. So the bootleggers would go and would gather that up and then they would sell it illegally under the, under the table, so to speak, to the people of the township, the people of the town and county. Um, he was a huge benefactor to the Catholic Church, gave a lot of contributions to the church, so that inured him to a lot of people. Um, and he, like his father and uncles before him, he understood the value of taking control of that school board. Because if you could control the school board, if you could have some authority over children, then that naturally meant you had some authority over their parents as well. Yes, that makes sense. I would imagine um, that in the throes of the Depression, to have that kind of position in the bank, it would have made him loved by some and feared and loathed by others. That's exactly right. And and it's funny that you say that because everybody sort of had uh, a different opinion of him. Uh, uh, people that didn't like him would call him a loan shark or a slot machine runner or an election rigger, you know. But people that loved him said he was just a, uh, he was the godfather of the township, so to speak. And they didn't use that word at that time. But um, he was so generous, particularly with the church, with community uh, organizations. So it was a double-sided coin. It just depended who you spoke to as to what, which of the Joe Brunos you were going to be talking to. Would you call uh, Bruno a gangster? Um, any connections to the Italian mob um, that you are aware of? Well, it's interesting because the... There are known connections between folks in Schuylkill County or in the coal region and certain organized crime operations, shall we say. Um, a lot of those were from the Philadelphia area. These these criminals would come from the Philadelphia area into the coal regions to engage in these illegal activities. So there there were some connections. There is no specific evidence to say that Joe Bruno ever really was connected, quote unquote. I think I get the feeling from studying him for as long as I did, his loyalty was really to himself. I'm not sure he was a guy who wanted to spread the wealth, if that makes sense. I think he wanted to create his own fortune and he really wanted to keep it and he wanted it within his own family, not share it with other criminals or gangsters or any of the other influences that might have been around. Absolutely. You do write in your book that there were some very notorious mafia families in Pennsylvania, including the Buffalinos, right. who were only a few miles away. So obviously, as you've, you've stated, this is all speculative, but but you can probably assume that they ran in some similar circles at the very least. I think that's a fair assessment. I don't think I don't think the um, gangsters that came over from Philadelphia tried to hide their identity. I think um, everybody knew who they were and everybody knew who Joe Bruno was. So they had to, as you say, if nothing else, they certainly were aware of one another and sort of understood what each other's territory was. Right. So the Bruno family has a rival family competing for power in town. Can you tell us about that family? 
Yes, the, the they were sort of the arch enemy of the Brunos. It was the Macaluso family. They were also an Italian family. Over the years, their name has been been anglicized a little bit. But when they first came to Schoolkill County, they were the they were the Macaluso family. Now, the Macaluso family they were Democrats. The Bruno family they were Republicans. So that was obviously the first bit of. Um, uh, uh, grievance between the two families. The other thing was the Macalusos also were working to unionize school teachers. Now, that was a big problem for Joe Bruno because Joe Bruno had the envious position of being able to appoint teachers, to appoint many of the school staff in general, but specifically teachers. If the teachers were unionized, Joe Bruno would have lost that sway. So the Brunos and the Macalusos had a, I don't want to say a war, it wasn't physical, but they they were constantly battling about what the direction of the school was going to be, who was going to control the school board, and whether or not the teachers were going to be unionized. As a matter of fact, a year before the Kellers massacre, which happened on November 5th, 1934, a year prior to that in 1933, there had been a local election um, for smaller offices, for smaller community offices, including, you know, school positions. And the Democrats were quite confident that they had won and they were going to seize power from Joe Bruno. Well, Joe, Joe came up with a a pretty efficient and simple means of putting the kibosh on that. And that was he took all the ballots. He took them home. His his story was he was going to check on some irregularities and do some recounting or, you know, whatever means necessary to take control of these ballots. The case eventually went to court because Joe would not admit that his Republicans had lost and the Macalusos would not admit, would not accept Joe Bruno's story that during his recount, the Republicans had won. So unfortunately, uh, a melee broke out at the school. Um, People were chasing each other, hitting one another. One teacher, I think, had a broken arm, as I recall. Um, Police had to be called in. It had to be stopped. But the 1933 election was just a complete mess, and it just fed into that anger that Joe Bruno was feeling. So by the time November 34 rolled around, he was sort of ready to be done with it once and for all. And that would have been in front of the the Bruno school, right? The, The 33 event? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, Joe Bruno renamed the school after himself, which... Um, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong. There, there were, there were good things that he did for the school. It had been a sort of a ramshackle wooden building before he actually, um, organized and took it upon himself to, uh, construct a new brick school that was more modern. Um, so he did good things for the community. The problem was there were always strings attached. Right, right. There were always favors to call in, I would imagine. Yeah. So can you walk us through the evening of Monday, November 5th, 1934, and how things escalated over the course of the night? Well, the, the evening started out with Democrats looking forward to the next day's election because um the 1932 national election went their way. They knew, even though the court case hadn't been decided yet, they knew that the disputed 1933 election had probably gone their way. So they were feeling really good about the 1934 election. Um, they thought that they really had a shot at knocking Joe Bruno off of his throne. Um, about nine o'clock that night, the Democrats decided that they were going to create a parade. And by parade, I mean a parade of vehicles um, with uh, Democrats uh, supporters to travel past Joe Bruno's house. 
And there's no doubt. We, I mean, we, we, we can't fool ourselves. They were sort of rubbing Joe Bruno's nose in the fact that they thought he was going to be losing power the next day. Um, but this parade of vehicles headed toward the intersection of Fourth and Center Streets, which is where Joe Bruno's house stood. One or two vehicles back from the lead vehicle was an open pickup truck full of children. Um, behind them was various other cars and trucks. The, the streets, the sidewalks were just packed. The town of Calares pretty much turned out in full force to watch this parade go past the Bruno house. Not long after these vehicles reached Joe Bruno's house, um, there, there's just, there's no other way to put it. All hell broke loose. There were so many gunshots, rifle shots, pistol shots in such rapid succession that when residents of the town called police for assistance, they thought it was submachine guns. They were hearing so many bullets. They were thinking this was some sort of automatic, you know, rifle, some sort of machine gun. What it was, in effect, was that Joe Bruno was shooting out of the window of his house. Catty corner, catty corner from his house was a building owned by the Saladego family with some apartments on the second floor. One of Joe Bruno's nephews was firing from that building. James Bruno, Joe's son, lived beside Joe. James Bruno was out on his lawn firing. There were just so many individuals firing at this crowd that it sounded like machine gun fire. I, I had the distinct pleasure of meeting many um, folks that live in Calares today that had some connection to the case. And I stood in that intersection and I looked up at the windows and you are just horrified to realize that you really are a sitting duck in the middle of this intersection. Um, when the firing stopped, five men were dead with horrific wounds. Twenty-six people were injured, including teenage uh, girls, several teenage girls. Um, I was really fortunate to dig up some police evidence that hadn't been seen in decades that the Pennsylvania State Police actually had forgotten they possessed. One of the things was a woman's shoe and nylon stocking. You can see the bullet hole go in one side of her shoe through the nylon stocking out the other side of her shoe. There was a hat of one of the victims that was in this box of evidence. Just, just, I mean, tiny um, pellet holes, shotgun pellet holes just all over this hat and blood. Uh, from the unfortunate man who was wearing it at the time. It was simply carnage. But one of the many amazing things about this story is that that open truckload of children, thank God, somehow, not one of those little kids was hit. And I'm not sure, having seen the intersection and knowing how much firepower was used, I just, I, I don't honestly know how they were spared from injury but they were. Chaos is a good way to describe it. For all of this to be happening in such a concentrated area, right? With packed sidewalks, a parade full of people, shooters. Yeah, and people on the street. And, and when you, when you, uh, the, it, it's very sad to realize how some of these people died. It really, it's like most things we 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 learn that tragedies often bring out the best in people. One of the young men was a football player. He was a very fit, healthy young man. He had seen a man fall. He ran out to see if he could offer assistance. He was shot and killed. Um, another young man was hiding under the steps of or I shouldn't say young. Another man was hiding under the steps of the church. And there was a law in the shooting, so he thought it was over. So he went to help neighbors and friends that he saw lying in the street. He was shot. It was a very premeditated thing. And that 
is really the most frightening aspect of it. When they searched Joe Bruno's home after the event, the the ammunition, the weaponry they found was was staggering. Three rifles, three shotguns, six revolvers. I think there was something like 13 sticks of dynamite he had. Hundreds and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Um, and that doesn't even include what what his family members had from their points where they were shooting from. So this was a very premeditated killing and you you just really have to wonder how in the world Joe Bruno thought he was going to perpetrate it and then get away with it. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. You state in your book, no one knows the motive, for sure, on why Bruno did what he did. Do you have any personal thoughts on his motive? I I just honestly believe that he he was a guy that very rarely heard the word no. And I believe that he believed that he was going to be in control of the town of Calares until he was ready to hand it over to one of his family members because nepotism was one of the biggest uh, tactics that the Bruno family employed. So I think that the simple realization that it was all about to end, I mean, the next day voting was going to start. And I think he had to know just by, like I said, the national trends from 32, the local elections the year before, he had to know he was about to lose control and I think for a man like Joe Bruno, who was accustomed to a great lifestyle, his home at the time was four times more expensive than anybody else's on his street. You know, he had a certain lifestyle that he wanted to protect. I just don't think he could accept that all of that was going to go away. So you said you stood in the intersection to try and get a feel for what it would have been like to sit in one of those cars have things changed there since 1934? Can you still get a good feel for what it would have looked like? You know what? The, the, the intersection is really very, very similar. Only one of the four corners has substantially changed, and that's because the small business that was on the corner is no longer there. But uh, the Bruno house is still there. The current owner allowed me to come in and, and see it just to see what what kind of sort of um, taste and he had great taste, but what kind of taste that Joe Bruno had. But the intersection itself is very, very similar to what it was. In fact, 
The Saladego building, which sits catty corner from the Bruno house, if you walk along the sidewalk and you know what you're looking for, little uh, patches, little uh, sort of patched concrete areas, you can still see where the bullet hole holes were from the day of the event. So it is incredibly similar to, to what it was in 1934. So how did these murders affect the election the next day. Well, you know, it's funny because I think that we tend to think we, we, you know, we who live in the age of the internet, we think that, well, information never traveled that quickly, you know, in the 1930s or, or a couple of generations back. But in reality, the story made the morning newspapers the day of the election, the next day, the day of the election, it was front page, huge headline material. The the repercussions were amazing. Democrats were immediately saying, look at this, the Republicans are trying to scare us. They're trying to intimidate us. They don't want us to show up at the polls. The Republicans spun it as the Democrats were uh, unruly. They were violent. There was a mob. They were attacking this respected Republican leader's house. So immediately it was spun by both sides. Um, and the result of the election was a Democratic landslide. Uh, in Pennsylvania, which had not had a Democratic governor, you know, in generations, uh, the Democrats swept the, the, the state houses. The, the response was, well, this is all because of the Kellers massacre. We saw what the Republicans did and the Democrats just went out and won the day. But in reality, that was probably going to be a foregone, foregone conclusion anyway. But it did make for a rallying cry as far as reporters went and folks looking for um, a great storyline. How long did it take for Joe Bruno to be arrested? On election day, early in the morning hours of election day, he was actually uh, taken away by police. The police formed a sort of um, protective barricade around the house with their vehicles because, as you can imagine, you know, the town was furious. They were angry. They were heartbroken. They had lost, you know, five men. Countless of their family members were injured, so they were angry with the Brunos. So the police actually had to do a, a bit of a unique twofold thing, and that was to protect Joe from the townspeople and take him into custody at the same time. But yeah, he was arrested immediately, and um, he and his son, uh, his nephews, they were all arrested and tried for manslaughter and or murder, depending on the um, specific case. So could you tell us who specifically was tried, what were the charges, and how did the trials play out? Joe himself was tried for involuntary manslaughter for the killing of one of the men, and then first-degree murder for another of the victims. His brother, Phil, was uh, charged with manslaughter. Joe, Joe himself was also charged with second-degree murder for three victims. Um, th there were various charges because they tried the cases independently of one another. So it depended on the case and the victim as to the severity of the charge but as I say, Joe's charges range from involuntary manslaughter to second-degree murder to first-degree murder. Um, his son was charged with second-degree murder. There were just a variety of charges and trials. Who were the victims? There were, as I said, there were five dead. The five men who died were Frank Fiorella, John Goloski, Dominic Perna, Andrew Kostishian, and a man by the name of William Fork. And it was William Fork who ran from the safety of the church steps. He was hiding under the church steps uh, to go and help his neighbors and was, of course, killed in the process. 
His trial was actually uh, the last trial. The charges all withheld trial. They were found guilty. Uh, Joe Bruno was found guilty. His family members were found guilty. Uh, Joe received life sentences. Uh, the other sentences varied um, because, as I say, each man could have been charged with two or three murders. So there were several sentencing options for each of those charges. You write in your book that life was not that unpleasant for Joe Bruno, though, right, while incarcerated. <laughs> they called the Schoolkill uh, County Prison the Bruno Hotel <laughs> because the, the rules that applied to all of the other prisoners did not apply to Joe. Uh, for instance, Joe and his family, they did not have to wear prison uniforms. They could have visitors in private anytime they wanted, which was really unique. Normally, you know, your visitors came and there was a guard supervising the meeting, not with Joe. He had, he had private visitors anytime he wanted. The most, the most interesting thing though is that Joe, his cell door wasn't locked. His cell door was actually most of the time open. So he could come and go as he pleased. He um, had a stove in his cell. He cooked his own uh, meals. So life for him in prison was not as hard as it should be, considering what he had been convicted of. Right. He got plenty of visits from his daughter. And, and you write of one instance where she sneaks him in $1,000 and he uses it to help him escape right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's the great thing about this story. Just when you think you've sort of uh, come to the end of it, it sneaks up with a new surprise. She, Antoinette, was his closest advisor. I think it's a fair description to use. She visited him most frequently the day before he escaped, it would have been December 17th of 1936, she visited him and she had apparently emptied the content, contents of a safe deposit box. So she brought him $1,000 in cash and negotiable bearer bonds. So altogether, the estimated value of the cash and bonds that she brought to her father in prison was about $35,000, which in the 1930s was a substantial sum of money. So the day after her visit, where she came bearing these gifts, Joe said he needed to see a dentist. Well, he was taken to the dentist went inside the building and escaped. He left from the dentist's office, got into another car, and went to New York. Part of the mystery surrounding it had to do with the man who was to drive him to the dentist's office. Uh, he was a newly hired guard, right? Yes, yes. The, the, the guard was, was suspected of being under Joe's influence, but even... More um, interesting than that, there were many who believed that the Schoolkill County commissioners, at least several of them, had been involved in helping Joe escape. Now, that was refuted. That was even refuted by the district attorney. But there was plenty of rumor circulating that um, Joe had friends in high places who helped him get out of jail free. So where did he go and how long was he free before law enforcement found him? He was out until August of 37. And it was interesting because it was just a tip. It was an anonymous tip came in to Schuylkill County detectives saying that um, a man who looked like Joe Bruno was uh, living in New York. Um, the only disguise that he had sort of bothered to create was dyeing his hair and getting different glasses and I think growing a mustache. I mean, he obviously wasn't that creative or concerned about being recognized because he didn't do a lot to prevent that. 
but yeah, it was an anonymous tip, and then the school de- school kill county detectives were able to go and stake out this apartment building in New York where Joe was said to be living, and they weren't there but a few hours that they saw Joe walking down the sidewalk and walked up to him. Joe put up no resistance. I mean, he when he realized the jig was up, he went with the cops and came back to Schoolkill County. And, and of course, uh, back to his cell. Did they lock the door this time? <laughs> Well, this time he went to Eastern State Penitentiary, which which was a far more secure uh, and harsh facility than the county jail was. So he did not have the option of uh, of escaping a second time. So what happens to him and the rest of the family? The family members who went to jail, uh, one of them Paul Bruno was given a new trial and he actually was acquitted. He's, his son got a 10 to 20 year sentence, as I recall, but served less than 10 years. His brother served a number of years, but was let out. Joe himself actually was in jail up until 1948 when he was finally paroled. Did he retire quietly? Well, he did. He came back and he came back to the Bruno house in at the intersection where the shooting occurred. And I think that I think that perhaps his conscience had been working on him a bit because he went to the Saladego house and John Saladego's son, Paul, answered the door. I spoke to Paul and I got this story from Paul, as a matter of fact. He asked, Joe asked if John was there, if John Saladego was there, and Paul said, yes, he is, and you better get out of here. So Joe may have wanted to make amends with the people he hurt, but the folks in the town had a pretty long memory, and they they weren't quite willing to forgive him. So how, if if at all, did the murders change Calaris? Well, you know, it's interesting, Eric. I don't, I don't know that the town itself has ever really changed that greatly at all. Um, and and that's not a negative thing. It's it's really quite amazing if you walk down the streets of Calaris today and you look at the mailboxes and or the names on the. You, you see the same families. It is still an amazingly close-knit, supportive community. And they really still operate on the principles of helping out your neighbors, being there, you know, coming out to help you if they see you're in need. They're just a town of really great people. They just had a bad guy running it for a while. And, um, but, you know, they survived it. They got past it. And it and to this day, the town of Calaires is really a, a, a beautiful, really friendly little town. What is the economy like there today? Is it still considered coal country? Well, coal itself is, um, you know, I don't I don't think I'm I don't think it's a newsflash to say that coal itself is not a is not a is no longer a growth industry. Um, so no, the, the coal industry has sort of gone by the wayside. You know, the funny thing was electricity was introduced into the town of Calaris, like electric street lights and other, uh, electric amenities were introduced, um, I think in the, around 1918. And that looking back now, one realizes was really sort of the beginning of the end of the coal industry for, um, for Schuylkill County and for the coal region at large. So you write that a part of your own enjoyment in researching your book was getting the chance to do some interviews with people involved in the events. Were there any particular stories that were especially compelling to you personally? I think for me, it was being taken around by, by members of the Saladego family, for instance, um, and they would say, now, in that building was where they drug one of the victims, 
Um, but he didn't live. He died within a few minutes of of the the homeowners pulling him inside to safety or saying that was where my mom was standing to watch the parade when the shooting broke out. It it was the sense that the memories were still alive. There's still a generation in Calaire's who can go back and talk about their family members being there as part of the day, either as a spectator or as somebody who might have been injured or somebody who assisted someone who was injured. And that, to me, was really, really important. I felt very lucky and very honored to be able to catch these people in time, to get their stories and their recollections, because, as you know, the thing about history is there's only a certain percentage of us that actually experiences it and the rest of us sort of learns about it later. I got to relive the Kellers massacre by people who had firsthand knowledge of the event. And I was really, really honored to be able to share their stories. Oh, that's great. So one of the other books that you've written that I think would make a good subject on Most Notorious down the road, it's called The Killing of John Sharpless in the Pursuit of Justice in Delaware County. Would you mind summarizing it for us? Yeah, I have to tell you that that was my first book. Um, and I think it will always really hold a, a, a special place for me. It was, um, in a nutshell, the case was a Quaker who was murdered in his own barn. And the only thing that anybody really knew was that they believed that it was a black man who had committed the murder. Um, and this was in the 1800s. This was late 1800s. Unfortunately, the overreaction to that information was that black men were for for very little reason in most cases, called in, arrested, interrogated, sometimes physically abused, because anybody who was black was suspected of murdering the Quaker John Sharpless. And John Sharpless was a wealthy man. The fact that he was religious aside, he was a smart uh, and and successful man. He was a wealthy man, well-known in the community. So the outrage at his death was unfortunately, um, how should I say, it was demonstrated through the zeal in trying to find this African-American man that shot him. Finally, uh, a black man was arrested for the crime. The evidence against him was minimal to none. In fact, John Sharpless's own widow disputed the identification. She was there in the house when, when she saw the men that, that were believed to have killed her husband. She said, no, um, this is not the man that was in my home. But it did not stop this overzealous prosecution. And unfortunately, an innocent man, I believe, was tried, sentenced to be executed, and died in prison. He was not executed, as it turned out, but he did die in prison. And it really is a sad story in some ways, but it's also it's also here again the the amazing parallels between modern life and something that happened 200 years ago. You know, I have a line I, I say to people all the time: nothing ever changes except the calendar page. Our our prejudices and our poor judgment and, and the good things about us also, you know, they, they remain as well. But what, what happened to that man was, in my view, just incredibly heartbreaking and unjust. But we can learn from that and not make those same mistakes, hopefully, which is why that story appealed to me and why I wrote the book. Interesting. And that happened in 1885, right? That's right. That's right. So tell us about your website, uh, what people can find there, and how listeners can order your books. 
Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, my, my website is, is stephaniehoover.com and it's got, um, all the links to my books. And I also create a couple of, um, I call them history tainment websites. Um, uh, for instance, hauntingly Pennsylvania, where I sort of look at the myths and legends and supposedly supernatural things that happen and I, I analyze them through a historical lens and sort of try to come up with the truth of the matter and um, try to create some entertaining stories for that. Uh, I also have just started a website called Old Fashioned Crime, where I'm hoping to take all of the research I've done for all these past years where I've I've uncovered some just tremendously interesting old crimes and sort of make an encyclopedia of those. But, yeah, all of that information can be found on my main website, which is stephaniehoover.com. And if anybody does go there, if anybody reads the books and and visits the website, I would love to hear what people think. I, I really enjoy hearing comments from folks. And they could just hit your contact link and communicate with you directly. You betcha. That's it. Well, perfect. This has been great. Thank you so much for doing this today. Absolutely. Hey, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Again, I've been speaking to Stephanie Hoover. She is the author of The Calaris Massacre, Politics and Murder in Pennsylvania's Anthracite Coal Country. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.